Good morning, church. It's good to be with you again in God's faithfulness to come and to sing his praise, to hear of his grace, and to consider his word it is before us. If you haven't already, would you open in your copy of God's word to the Gospel of Mark, the portion that was just read in chapter 2. As we're considering this gospel together, taking these Sundays to work our way through it, let's seek the Lord in a brief moment, asking for the aid of his spirit to help us, for we are surely attempting something futile without the aid of his spirit and his kindness towards us. Father, we look to you this morning, expressing not only our great dependence, but our great confidence, our great dependence upon you and your spirit, admitting and confessing that apart from the illumination of your own spirit, apart from the the aid of your own divine help, what we are needing to do and what we long to do is, is empty. But Lord, we come in great confidence knowing that you are our Father, you're our Heavenly Father, and that you delight to give good gifts to your children, that you delight to help and to teach, and that you delight to strengthen our faith and to show us your Son, our Lord Jesus. So we ask in humility and we ask in great faith, would you be faithful to your promise, be faithful to your church, and be faithful to the goodness of the gospel this morning for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, as you've probably recognized, the gospel of Mark, it does begin with this great announcement. It begins with great fanfare and it's simplicity, but yes, yet it's um, absolute wonder declaring that Christ most definitely is good news and that Jesus Christ who is the anointed Messiah he is the son of God that the greatest news that we could ever hear the most important news that we could ever lay a hold of is found in him and Mark goes on to say this is good news not just for a few select people but he begins to point out specific examples this is good news for the sick this is good news for lepers This is good news for outcasts, and ultimately, this is good news for sinners. But even in hearing that, and in reading that, what is ironic is that Mark also records not everyone is excited about this good news. Certainly, there are those who are indifferent, but there are actually those who are opposed to this good news. Beginning in chapter 2, there are five consecutive stories that Mark weaves together that show this steady and increasing conflict in regards to who Jesus is and what he's come to do. The first account in the beginning of chapter 2, the healing of the paralytic, this antagonism is actually unspoken. They think it, but it's nevertheless recorded, and Christ actually answers The next three accounts in 13 through 17, 18 through 22, and then 23 to 28, these accounts result in actual verbal confrontation. Questions, questions that are actual accusations are brought before Jesus. And then in this portion that we just read in chapter 3, verse 6, the opposition moves to actually this point to where the Pharisees and the Herodians are now plotting to destroy Christ. They are seeking and scheming of ways to kill him. And in each encounter, 
What is happening is that the authority of Jesus is actually exploding the structures and the categories that have been created and which people, specifically the Pharisees, would seek to force Christ into. Jesus continues to not only defy expectations, but he is pushing against the accepted definitions of righteousness, of faith, and obedience. And when he pushes against those accepted definitions, there's pushback, there's opposition, there's conflict. And I think what is so important for us to see and to hear in this opposition, that the opposition to good news, it's not restrained here to Mark's gospel. This sort of opposition continues even until today. And as we consider the words of Jesus, we too, we are meant to hear them as good news, but also we must reckon with the fact that because of the corruption of sin and because of remaining unbelief, even within our own hearts, we too can bristle against the authority of Christ. There are specific moments, circumstances, maybe even assumptions that we hold this morning that when Christ comes in his authority, we may find ourselves stepping back. The opposition that the Pharisees show and give, it's not recorded just to give us someone to boo at. As we read the account, here's the heroes, here's the villains. We are meant to see ourselves and the greatness of our need for God's grace, even in their opposition. The concern of the Pharisees is meant to teach us. It is meant to serve as a warning to us and a helpful aid. Here's the big idea of what we need to see in this text this morning. As strange as it may sound to you, it is actually possible to be religiously faithful, even zealously devoted to spiritual disciplines, and yet oppose Christ. But what we must also see and discover is when we see Christ as he is and discover him in all of his authority, we recognize that it is actually wonderfully good news. That the authority of Christ is actually wed to the goodness of Christ. But we don't always recognize that. We don't always see it. So let's look at these encounters through the questions of the Pharisees, the concerns of the Pharisees, and we'll do it this way. We'll consider their concern over what Jesus wasn't doing, they're going to see that they were greatly concerned over what he was doing, and then lastly in chapter 3, they're concerned over what he might actually do. Concern over what he wasn't, what he was, and what he might do. Look back at verse 18 of chapter 2, where this concern arises over what he was not doing. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, being Jesus, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your do disciples do not fast? Well, we know what's happening here. Mark has told us that his fame is spreading more and more, that no matter where Jesus goes, the crowds assemble. And as often happens with rising fame and rising popularity, a person's life is put under a microscope and examined. And as Jesus begins to be more and more prominent, his life is examined. And one of the observations that people make is, hey, your life is not like 
the lives of others. How come you and your disciples do not fast? This is interesting because they bring up this issue of fasting, which along with giving and public prayer, it had become essentially one of the visible markers of your religious devotion. How do you know somebody is a religious person? Well, obviously they're going to be fasting. We'll listen to the way that they pray, and we know something about their giving. You can read Matthew 6 about more of what Jesus has to say about this. Scripture actually only prescribed one day a year for God's people to fast, and it was on the Day of Atonement. It was the day of Yom Kippur when they would recognize and the great high priest would enter and they would fast in preparation for this great sacrifice. But the Pharisees took it upon themselves to not just fast once a month, not just twice a month, but they had decided that twice a week was the marker of religious faithfulness. They actually put on their calendars each Monday and each Thursday as fast days. And you could set your watch, mark your day planner by it, because Jesus, again in Matthew, would rebuke them for the way in which they fast because you knew they were fasting and that they were unkept, their hair all distraught, and you knew they're fasting. And here are the people surrounding Jesus, looking at the Pharisees, looking at Christ and his disciples, and saying, how come you are not like them? Because this tradition of fasting was looked upon as the spiritual thermometer It was the visible indicator if someone was religiously devoted to God or not. And so they come, why don't the disciples of Jesus fast? And he gives them two answers. Essentially, he says, one, it would be inappropriate, and secondly, it would just be incompatible. Here's what I mean. Verses 19 through 20, Jesus responds by saying, they don't fast because it would be inappropriate. And what is the image that he gives them? Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. He says, I'll tell you why. First of all, it's absolutely inappropriate. And against the somber backdrop of fasting, Jesus puts forward this celebratory picture of a wedding. Now, you may love or despise weddings. That's not the point here. The point of what Jesus is making is culturally what is understood at a wedding, and even so much more so in Jesus' day than ours. Because culturally, when you would attend a wedding, it was not an afternoon, it was not a brief evening, but it was typically a seven-day feast. It was a seven-day celebration where you would invite friends and family, you would take off from work, you would go to work, you would come back, and you would continue feasting, celebrating, drinking, and laughing, because this is a joyous moment. And Jesus says, why are they not fasting? Well, he says, how inappropriate would it be to fast when you should be feasting? The bridegroom is here. And how inappropriate would it be if the bridegroom looks out at his celebration with all of this wonderful food and drink and the 
the attendees of the wedding are saying, no, thank you. I'm fasting. It would be completely inappropriate. It would be completely uncalled for. And this image becomes all the more important when we remember how often the scriptures speak of the Lord as the bridegroom and his people as his bride. Not only throughout the Old Testament, but explicitly in the New Testament of Christ being wed to his bride, his people, the church. And he said, the bridegroom is here. The reason they're not fasting is the very reason because I am here. What he's telling these Pharisees is that by your attempt to fast and be so devoted to your religious practice, you have actually missed the reason why you ought to be fasting. When God prescribed fast in the Old Testament, it was preparatory to repent of sin, to declare your need for God's atonement. And what has happened? Jesus Christ, the righteous, the advocate, is here. The one that you've been praying for and fasting and waiting upon is here in your midst. Now it's time to celebrate. He points out the absolute inappropriateness of why they would be fasting. The second answer is in verses 21 through 22. Not only is it inappropriate, he says essentially it's just incompatible. And he gives two images. Verse 21, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and the worst tear is made. Second image, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. And going on further to explain what Christ has come to do, Jesus speaks of a new patch and new wineskins. Now, both images are essentially contrast to the old garment and to the old wineskin. In both instances, something that was once useful, an old garment or an old wineskin, is absolutely incompatible with the new element. The new patch is unshrunk, and when it is sewn to the old garment, when it is washed, that new patch will shrink and those stitches will tear, and now you've just ruined your garment. The same way, this new wine will ferment and expand, but if it's poured into an old wineskin that's already expanded and maxed out its shape, that fermentation is just going to burst the old wineskin. It's absolutely incompatible to put new wine into an old wineskin. What is Jesus getting at? Both pictures illustrate the radical nature of Jesus' person and his ministry. He is the new patch. He is the new wine. And what he's saying is that what he has come to do is so far beyond a patch job upon religious Israel and so full of life and joy that it's incompatible to be poured into this present system. What he's saying is this. Jesus Christ cannot come and become an attachment. He is not an addition to an existing life, to an existing system, and he is so unlike the existing life, the existing system, the existing culture, that you can't just pour it into it as it is. It demands something altogether new. The newness of what he brings is incompatible with the present condition. 
Have you ever heard of the word syncretism? Syncretism is essentially an attempt to blend, or as it even sounds like, synthesize two different practices or beliefs. You just try to take two things and you, you mash them up. Now, you often hear this if you're thinking or, or reading or even attempting to do any sort of missions work, that it's often a, a great problem in new missions areas where you, the, the existing culture attempts to take existing cultural practices and just wed them to Christianity. We'll take ancestral worship and we'll blend it to the worship of God. But it's not just a missionary problem. It's actually an equally common problem in well-developed, evangelized Western culture. And in this environment, Jesus, he becomes the self-help coach. He becomes this wonderful patch that you can just put upon your tattered life and see how much better your life is with Jesus. He comes this boost of joy that you need to pour into your life that is otherwise drab and empty. Add some Jesus to what you have and see how much better he is. That, my friends, is syncretism. Because Jesus is saying, I did not come to patch up your old life or become some additive and some lack that you already know you have. Christianity is not a patch job for broken lives. Christ is not an additive that you just pour in to top up an otherwise empty life. Christ has come to make all things new. The dead must be made alive. The unclean must be clean. Rebels must become adopted sons and daughters. This is a picture of the newness, ultimately, of the new covenant of what Christ brings in compared to the old covenant. What is the new covenant? What's the old covenant? We could simplify it and say this. The old covenant was established by God, given to God's people, and it contained the laws and the commandments, the sacrificial system, and the physical temple. And it was absolutely important because the entire system given by God pointed to God's righteous standards, man's inability to keep the standard, and therefore this pervasive need for sin to be atoned for. That is what you heard every time you went to the temple. That is what you saw every time smoke went up and the sacrifice was offered. Sin equals death. We need atonement. We need a rescuer. New covenant, established by God, carried out by the Son, and it too involves laws, it involves sacrifice, forgiveness from sin, but only because Jesus kept the law, becomes the sacrifice, and then cleanses his people. It is a new covenant, entirely new. And this new covenant shows God's willingness not only to cleanse the sin of his people, but to give them new hearts, to give them new natures, to actually cause them to become born again. This is the work that Christ has come to do. And it is so much better than just, here, put a patch on that mess. Just add a little thing to your leaky life, and it will be all better. If you are settling for that or attempting to find a way to mash Jesus into your existing life, you are missing out on what Christ has come to do. It is a new thing 
that Christ comes to do, ushering in this entirely new covenant. Because he has not come just to cover over sin. He has come to remove sin, to cleanse it. He has not come just to strengthen a weak structure and add a little bit to it. He says, I am bringing an entirely new structure. I am bringing life, union with the triune God. He has come not to write the law on tablets of stone, but to come to write his law on our hearts so that we become those who say, I delight to do your will, O God. That is a new work. That doesn't just happen by Christ becoming a life coach for your otherwise miserable life. New garments, new wine, wedding feasts, these are all images of salvation and what Christ has come to do. Before we go on, can I just ask you, have you made the same mistake as the Pharisees? Have you begun to adopt this idea that's syncretized with the world around us saying, just remain as you are, but add this. Have you been approaching Christ and Christianity in that way? Trying to hold on to your life as it is? I just need to stop doing that and I just need to start adding this in and then I'll be better. I see my flaws and what I need to do is just more of this. What Christ has come to say is I am come to bring newness. Not patches, not additives. I am coming to bring new. He has come to do so much more than the Pharisees and many of us ever realize. They're concerned over what he's not doing. But it goes on because we also read they're concerned over what he was doing. Look back at your Bibles at verse 23 now. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Their concern was over what was happening. And please understand, their concern was not that the disciples were stealing some poor farmer's grain. Their concern was not over the taking of the grain, but what was being done in taking this grain. Let me explain. Their concern was over what the teaching or the tradition of that day qualified as work. Mark is careful to note that this was on the Sabbath. Very important day given by God to his people that was a day declared to be set apart. That this one day should look different than the other six days. That's what it means to keep it holy, that it's set apart. And so faithful people sought to be faithful to God's word and set apart this day, and a part of setting apart this day was ceasing from work, all good and fine. Until the question comes from the back, what is work? Could you help me define that? The teaching of the day which is described as the Mishnah, which is essentially the rabbi's commentary on scripture, listed not one, not five, not 10, not 30, but 39 classifications of what constituted as work. Suddenly, it's becoming harder to rest on this Sabbath day than it is actually to work the other six. Things such as plowing, harvesting, hunting, sowing, kneading, baking, mixing, Extinguishing a fire, 
All of these things had classifications of work. And what got even more extravagant was the scribe's definition of those terms. Surely you hear, okay, we shouldn't hunt or harvest on the Sabbath. That can wait for the other sixth. But as you're about to stand and leave, you hear the rabbi say, and don't forget, as you go down to eat your your dinner this Sabbath, be careful not to drag a chair across your dirt floor, lest that leg drags into the dirt and you are guilty of plowing. Please restrain from looking at your reflection, lest you are tempted to pluck a gray hair and you begin to harvest. This was the construct. This was the religious teaching of the day that said, this is the mark of faithfulness. This is the Sabbath. And they come to Christ and say, why are your disciples doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? They were harvesting. They were picking grain to eat along their way. And they said, you have done what's not lawful. You're breaking the Sabbath. The disciples are brought into the crosshairs of the Pharisees because their concern was over what they and what Christ was doing. Now, how Jesus goes about answering their question is one that we must pay attention to. Instead of getting lost in the weeds and correctly redefining all these 39 classifications of work, Jesus goes after the deeper issue. Who am I? He solves this entire riddle by just saying, look, who are you talking to? That's essentially where Jesus goes. Because when we understand who Jesus is, our understanding of the Sabbath is put in its rightful place. Anytime you and I try and disconnect the law of God from the hand of the God who gave it, we will have problems because it becomes this external, disconnected code rather than a revelation of the God who gives it. And so Jesus says, what you need to understand, Pharisees, church, is who I am. And then let's talk about what this day is. How does he do this? Well, he says in verse 25 and 26, your first problem is you haven't read the scriptures. Have you not read? This is a bit tongue-in-cheek. Because the very men that he's talking to, on their business card, it literally said, I read the scriptures. Their job was to discern, to teach, and to explain the scriptures. And so here is Christ saying, haven't you done your job? Haven't you read the scriptures? And by referencing this Old Testament example, verse 25, He seeks to set in place this important principle in regards to the Sabbath of necessity. What are works of necessity? Look at the example Christ points to. He said to them, have you, verse 25, never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, and he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God at the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat. Then he also gave it to those who were with him. Jesus points to this account, 1 Samuel 21. The house of God that David entered was at that time the tabernacle, just south of Jerusalem in this town called Nob. David and his men 
are fleeing from Saul. They're hunger. They come to the priest. They ask for food. And the priest says, all that we have here is the showbread. The bread that was put out, set apart for the worship of the tabernacle. And the only people authorized to eat this bread were the priests when this bread was switched out every week. Being a priest wasn't a bad job. You got barbecue and fresh bread quite often. (laughs) And David knows there's going to be food there. And the priest said the only bread that we have is the bread that's the show bread. And technically, it's set apart to be given to those who are serving in the house of God. But scripture records in this moment, David ate the bread, was given the bread, and nowhere in scripture is he condemned for doing so. What are we to make of this? Why is Christ pointing to this? The ceremonial law reserving this bread for the priest gives way to necessity. The anointed king and his men are here, hungry in the wilderness, and out of necessity, they are given bread to eat. How disjointed and how absolutely tone deaf would it have been for the priest to withhold this bread from David if the dialogue went like this? David, may I have some of that bread? I'm fleeing from Saul and I'm greatly wearied in my journey through the wilderness. Priest, no. This bread is the showbread. It testifies of God's provision for his people, sustaining them when they were very weary from their journey in the wilderness. (laughs) Works of necessity give way to the precedent that had been set. Essentially, Jesus is saying to these Pharisees, you remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. But that does not mean forbidding works of necessity. These men are hungry. They grab some heads of grain to eat. You have greatly misunderstood the Sabbath. You have not read your scriptures. But he goes on in verses 27 to 28. says, not only have you not read the scriptures, you have not understood them. Look at what he says in verse 27. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Here's what's happening. In all of their effort to safeguard the Sabbath, they had failed to see the larger point of the Sabbath. What is this day for? Please understand what's happening here. Jesus is not refuting the existence of the Sabbath. What he's doing is correcting their misunderstanding of its purpose. He does not go after and say, fourth commandment doesn't apply. He's saying, you don't understand the fourth commandment. You've completely misunderstood the purpose of this day. The order and the emphasis is absolutely essential. The Sabbath exists to serve man. Man was not made to serve the Sabbath. What Jesus is getting at is that God gave it to Adam in paradise. God modeled it, created in six days, and on the seventh, God rested. 
Not because he was a tired God, but because he's a good God. And he could look at his work and say, I am satisfied. I am resting. He created Adam in his own image. And a part of that image bearing means reflecting the very thing that God does. God works and God rests. So I work and I rest. And then God also renewed this same idea of Sabbath as he renewed it and giving it on Mount Sinai. He actually codified it and said, this is such a good idea and it is such a reflection of my good purposes. Remember to keep the Sabbath. Keep it holy, set it apart. God in his grace says, this day is for you. I've provided it for you. But the religious formulas of that day reversed the order, making a burden, saying, you exist for that day. You serve it. And Christ says, no, it serves you. I've given it to you to serve you. And to put a sharper point on it, Christ says not only was this Sabbath made for man, he draws a line from the lesser to the greater Not only was it made for man, but the Son of Man is Lord even of this Sabbath. Not only does the Sabbath exist for man, the Sabbath exists ultimately for Jesus, who is the Son of Man. This day has been given to him, and that's why we refer to it as the Lord's Day. He is the Son of Man, and he is Lord even of the Sabbath. And so what he says to these men is that you have misunderstood the entire point of the Sabbath. I am Lord of this Sabbath. And whatever somebody is Lord of, what that means is that all the energy and all the activity of their dominion serves the good pleasure of the Lord. He is over it. And it serves him because he has that rightful authority. Pharisee, he says, the problem is so much bigger than your fixation upon detailing 39 classifications of work because you have missed who I am and who this Sabbath ultimately points to. And how important is this for us to grasp? Any religious practice that does not point to Christ is pointless. When religion becomes the end of itself, it eventually is the death of itself. And if we do not understand that and the importance of what Christ has given in this day, we run the same risk of becoming fixated upon the details and missing the absolute point of what has been given. The Sabbath was made for man and Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. What does that mean? Two thoughts that I think we need to be clear on. Much more could be said, but at least this. Number one, we must reckon with the fact that this is one of the Ten Commandments which are perpetual. Christ has come, and he did not abolish the law. He did not do away with the law, such as have no gods before me or the command not to murder, or even as we prayed and confessed this morning, the command not to covet, those were not done away with. They were fulfilled, 
and the demands of the law have been met, but the goodness of the law and its purpose still remains. Christ has come, and he did not rebuke them for keeping the law, but he said, you've misunderstood this law entirely. The pattern of one day in seven, it remains today. God still thinks it's a good idea for us to rest. He still thinks it's a good idea to set apart one day in seven. He still is Lord of the Sabbath and graciously gives it to his people. Here's the second thing. We need to remember specifically that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. And so the purpose of this one day in seven is to honor him as such. Rule keeping and work stoppage alone, it's important, but it's alone, it's not enough. Because anyone can do that. Anyone can keep rules or try to and just say, hey, I need Sundays off. That doesn't necessarily mean we're honoring Christ as Lord. In fact, what you need to be is born again to do that. The Sabbath is kept only when Jesus is upheld as Lord. And that is why the church gathers on the first day of the week. And this is the, one of the primary ways this day is made holy, set apart, looks distinct. That you could wake up and go, something's different about this day from the other six. What is it? Oh, God's people are gathering. And what are they doing when they're gathering? Well, they're declaring him to be Lord, and they're doing so by declaring his beauty and the fact that the way that you repent of sins, that we declare his mercy, that we sing of his goodness, that we hear the word preached, that we eat and drink at the Lord's table, and that we respond to him in prayer. This whole day, everything we're doing is pointing to the fact Jesus is Lord. And then we consciously... And intentionally, we fill our day with the sort of activities that are going to help us, even provoke us to rest and to consider the goodness of his lordship. Eat. Give thanks. Have other people over. Eat. Give thanks. Rest. Hear the word of God. Sing together. Do all of this so that Christ might be seen and proclaimed as Lord. So whatever our Lord's Day activities look like, they ought to all lend support to this one great declaration, Jesus is Lord. That's why, helpfully, our own confession summarizes this in chapter 22. Paragraph 1, the light of nature demonstrates that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all. He is just and good, and does good to everyone. Therefore, he should be feared, loved, praised, called on, trusted in, and served with all the heart and with all the soul and with all the strength. And then paragraph seven. It is the law of nature that in general, a portion of time specified by God should be set apart for the worship of God. So by his word and a positive moral and perpetual commandment that obligates everyone in every age, He is specifically appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto him. From the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ, the appointed day was the last day of the week. 
after the resurrection of Christ, it was changed to the first day of the week, which is called the Lord's Day. God, gracious creator of all things, made this Sabbath for you. Do you realize that? God, who is the gracious creator of all things, made this Sabbath for you, and he is the Lord of it, even this day of rest. And what has struck me as I was even thinking about this this morning is the very fact that Jesus says, okay, track with me on this. Man was not made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man. Jesus is Lord of this Sabbath. This is entirely in line with the whole theme of the Gospel of Mark, even as we've been reading this month in Mark chapter 10, 45. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So if you want, I believe, an accurate picture of what is happening on this day, the Son of Man, who is Lord, he comes to his people and he says, I'm serving you. This is a day of rest that I'm giving to you. I created it, and it's for you. Rest. That is an entirely different understanding than what legalism attempts to do, though I believe for good motive, and a complete miss of what antinomian, just a, a throwing out of the whole idea of a Sabbath. You are turning down the gift that God gives to us in Christ that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. This day is for you. How might we then order our day and help one another to set apart this day in such a way that it would not only be received as God intended, but magnify Christ as Lord? I think we have much learning and growth to do in that and much more rest to experience as a result of that. Concern of the Pharisees was not only over what he wasn't doing or what he was doing, but in chapter 3, what we see, their concern was also over what he might do. Look back at verse 1. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might not rejoice but accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him and how they might destroy him. What we have to see here is that the Sabbath issue is important enough that Jesus doesn't let it go. He continues to push against the religious leaders and their teaching not only to show their folly, but ultimately to show his lordship. Here's the real problem of what's happening. According to Sabbath tradition and teaching, it's permissible to give what we would call first aid to prevent an injury from worsening. Put a tourniquet on it, 
and then go to the doctor tomorrow. First aid, but not restoration. Here's a man with a withered hand, not life-threatening. He's lived with this for some amount of time, we don't know what, and it wouldn't have killed him to wait another 24 hours. But Jesus says, come here, stand up. Jesus goes after the very issue and the real problem in the matter. Jesus now turns the tables and he starts to ask the questions rather than answering them. And having the man stand and come forward, Jesus asks two simple questions. This isn't a trick question. You can even use notes. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? While you're thinking about that one, is it lawful on the Sabbath to save life or to kill? Well, hopefully the question that you're all asking is this. Is it ever lawful to do unlawful things? Is it ever lawful to do evil? Is it ever lawful to do harm? Is it ever unlawful to do good? Is it ever unlawful to show mercy? No, but that's exactly what the tradition and dead religion had done to the Sabbath. You're not permitted to do good. It's even unlawful to save or restore life. The real problem is that in the name of holiness and doctrinal purity, they had become numb, really, to the purposes of God and the sufferings of men before them. Their silence was evidence of that. And this angered and grieved Jesus. And this response has not changed. He is unchanging in all his being. Forsaking and forbidding mercy is contrary to the very expression of what this day is about. That's the real problem. The real issue is this. We must keep in mind that the real issue at hand is Jesus' claim, as he just said, to be Lord of this Sabbath. If he is Lord, then what does that mean? He has the authority. He has the right as Lord of the Sabbath, to say, be healed. He sets the terms. It's his day. He makes the rules, not us. That is the real issue. And this means that the Sabbath healing was in the context of hostility, but that wasn't the substance of the issue. They weren't upset that the man was healed. They sought to hurt, uh, murder him not because of the healing, but because of what the healing made plain. You do whatever you want. Yeah, I'm Jesus. I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Have we met? That is the issue. The real issue is the issue of authority. Does Jesus have the right to push against their assumptions and their practices? Does he have the right to decipher how the honor of the Sabbath is actually carried out? Does he have the right to confront and to rebuke? Does he have the right to confront you and I? Does he have the authority to command not just how the Lord's day is to look, but how our entire lives are to look? Does he have the authority 
to direct what we are to think and believe about marriage, about sexuality, about work, about leisure, about obligations to family and fellow church members. Does he have the authority to push those buttons in my life? Yeah, that's the real issue. And the scriptures go to great lengths to make this so plain and so clear for us. Jesus has inherent authority by the very nature of who he is. He is the eternal son of God, creator and ruler with all authority. That's who he is. And this authority is not just inherent, it's actually been made explicit or made plain by the very mission of Christ and what he's come to do. Romans 1, Paul's introduction to this great gospel. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Inherent authority and explicit authority by the fact that he died and rose again. Or how about Philippians chapter 2? And being found in human form, he, Christ, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, according to the glory of God the Father. Inherent authority and explicit authority by the very nature of his life, death, and resurrection. This, brothers and sisters, right here is where the penny drops. Every time we read of the authority of Christ in the scriptures, do you know what we're also reading of? The absolute goodness of Christ. Think about it. The inherent authority and the explicit authority. You are reading, yes, about the authority of Christ, but what is the authority of Christ communicating that he died, rose again, ascended? Not just authority for authority's sake, but in that very message, it's wrapped in goodness. Why did he live? Why did he die? Why did he rise again? Not just to have a title, but to have a people, to redeem his elect. Anytime we read of his authority, we must also say synonym, goodness. This is good authority. Friends, let us never leave off, let us never cease to remind one another that the lordship of Jesus and his authority over our lives is a wonderfully gracious provision. We live in a culture that wants to dull us asleep to believe that synonyms of authority and evil are the same, excuse me, the same thing. That authority is oppression. That authority is man-made. And the Bible would say, no, it's actually the opposite. Authority exists because God is, and good authority is a wonderfully good thing. For this Jesus, he rules, he is Lord, 
but not as a ruthless tyrant looking out for his own preservation, but as a wonderfully gracious king who actually and always only does what is good for his people. That is the kind of authority that he wields. This is a gracious provision because while Jesus always and only does what is good, you know as well as I do that our opinions, our ambitions, our self-imposed rules can often be clouded by and distorted by the corruption of sin. What we're calling good isn't always good. And Christ in his authority and goodness comes and says, I'm the Lord. This is the way it is. That is good. That is goodness delivered to us. And so when he comes to us through the authority and clarity of his word, correcting our thinking, rebuking our practices or beliefs, we rejoice because that's good news for me. His authority is goodness. I need that authority. I need to be reminded, even corrected, as to what good actually is. And Jesus here, he corrects these and rebukes these erring Pharisees because their understanding of the Sabbath is so harmful and his is so much better. And Jesus corrects and he often rebukes you and I when our judgment is clouded by sin and remaining unbelief because his ways are so much better than ours. If this idea of Jesus' authority over your life, even over a particular day, concerns you, it's only because you've forgotten or you've cast aside the reality of his goodness. Just like the Pharisee, we bristle against Christ and his word only when we fail to see him as he is. That's the reality. And when a friend, when a spouse, when a fellow church member comes to you with the authority of God's word, reminding you maybe of something you already know, and we find ourselves dodging or dismissing or even excusing, in that moment, we must remind ourselves, no, this is Jesus. This is his word. This is good for me. His authority over me is good because he is good and wields his authority in perfect goodness. And when we hear God's word preached or we read it in our homes, we must remember his commands are not burdensome. He has given me his law out of his goodness. And he is Lord. And his commands and his word, it comes with all of the wisdom, all of the goodness of the Lord who feeds his sheep and seeks to protect him. His authority comes to you in all of his goodness. So when Jesus heals this man on the Sabbath, he is providing for us a window into the reality and the real meaning of the Sabbath. This is where wholeness is found. This is where restoration is experienced. It comes from the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus has come. He's triumphed over sin and death 
and hell. He's gathering a people for himself out of every tribe and tongue and nation. And he's building for himself a kingdom in the midst of this fallen world. The Lord of the Sabbath has come. And his people say, and he's coming again. He's coming again to restore all things. One day the Lord of the Sabbath will return and he will call sinners washed in his grace and say, enter into the joy of your Lord. It's been prepared for you. Not only has he given us a day to say rest in it, he says, I have given you myself. And in giving you myself, I give you an eternity of rest that we long to be entered into. So brothers and sisters, this day is in essence a preview. What we do on this one day in seven, it's just a starter, an appetizer, a taster of what is to come for all eternity and what Christ has accomplished, what he calls us to, and what he will bring his people into. So in a sense, we gather to anticipate what is real, but not yet all the way complete. The already and the not yet. What we can say is this. The Sabbath preaches good news to us. This is a good day because he is Lord of the Sabbath. In this day, we hear the Lord of the Sabbath call to us, just like he did to the man with the withered hand. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. That is good news, especially for sinners. Father, we rejoice to hear and we get excited to be reminded that you are sovereign, especially when we face things outside of our control, especially when we face circumstances that we cannot fix. And so we fall back on this great comfort, knowing that you are most definitely sovereign over all things. But Lord, we confess how often we need to be reminded that not only do you have all authority, you are all goodness. So Lord, would you help us when we bristle, when we push back, when unbelief clouds our vision, to see that you are not only full of authority, but you are full of goodness. We pray that you would help us, that we might know true rest, that what you bring and the ways that you have declared are good, that they are good. Lord, forgive us when we push back against this or insist that our understanding is probably the better way. Lord, continue to conform us to the image of your Son. Continue to call us into this rest and grow us in what this might mean for us as your people, that we might be even more enamored and overjoyed to hear that you are the Lord of the Sabbath. And with your people as they have prayed for generations, we do pray, Lord, come quickly. We long to enter into the rest that you provide in perfection, in totality, for all days, for all that we are. Lord, continue to cause our eyes to be fixed on you and not upon the minutia of all the obedience that we seek to give, but the reason why we seek to be obedient. Help us in this, we pray. Grow us in this, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.